Well, this morning we return to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, we'll be looking at verses 35 through 43, and the account of a blind man named Bartimaeus. Luke 18, beginning with verse 35, let me read that for us. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Well, of course, you'll remember where we are in this portion of Luke. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. When he arrives at Jerusalem, he is going to be arrested and he is going to be crucified. And Luke is giving us an account of the various things that happened and the various things that Jesus taught while on his way to the crucifixion. Here he is approaching Jericho, we're told. And there is a beggar. He is a blind man. A beggar, this is the only way that people with these kinds of disabilities could live then in the first century. And this blind man sitting by the side of the road begging hears a commotion as Jesus comes down the road with clearly a lot of people in tow. Jesus was very well known by this point. Even this blind beggar knew who Jesus was knew what had been said about him. He knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of David. And he knew that Jesus had been able to heal. And now he wants some of that power for himself. He was blind, of course, so he could not see Jesus, but there were several things that he could see. He could certainly see his need. His eyes were covered in darkness. The man needed sight. He knew that very well. So when Jesus gives him the opportunity to say what he needed, his answer is very simple and very direct. Lord, I want to regain my sight. He also needed money. That much is very clear. He was begging. He needed money. As a direct result of his blindness, he lived a life of abject poverty. Day after day, sitting there by the side of the road, begging. What else could he do? He had no way to earn any kind of steady 
income as a blind man living in that culture. There was no provision made for the disabled. He was destitute. The blind man could see his need, and out of this desperate misery, he cries for salvation. Mercy was his only plea, and so he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And that word mercy suggests that he also may have perceived his spiritual need. At a minimum, the man is asking for physical healing and believes that Jesus is capable of providing that. As Daryl Bach indicates, our need for mercy is often associated with sin, and sometimes mercy is needed because the plight is particularly desperate. In its fullest sense, mercy is the love of God for sinners. The grace by which he rescues us from our lost and desperate condition. Mercy is what David asked for when he prayed, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David wrote that when he was under the severe conviction of the Holy Spirit regarding his sin with Bathsheba. And he knew that he deserves nothing from God. All he could do is to cry out for mercy. And whether he realized it or not, when the blind man asked for mercy, he was asking Jesus for something more than his sight. He was asking for salvation. Jesus would give him both. The first step is always to admit the problem, isn't it? The blind man who sat by the side of the road saw his need. In fact, he saw it more clearly than the rich young ruler did. In the previous passage we've seen, that man's material prosperity prevented him from seeing his spiritual poverty, and he went away unsaved. He would have been much better if he had been like the blind man, if he had been, in fact, a beggar. That may have been what he needed to cause him to see his spiritual poverty. This is what we all need to see. Our need for Jesus, specifically our need for him to save us from the blindness of sin. In His book about the miracles of Jesus, Richard Phillips, points out that the various miracles in the Gospel of Luke are intended to show us the deadly and debilitating effects of sin. He says this, leprosy shows sin's corrupting power and condemning presence. The lame show sin's debilitating power. The dead proclaim the wages of sin. The demon-possessed show the destructive domination that is always the result of our bondage to sin and to Satan. This is what we need to understand when we come to the Gospels, when we come to the book of Acts, when we see these miracles being performed in the scriptures. The miracles are not being performed simply for the sake of performing miracles. There is also something else going on along with the miracle. For each miracle, there is an analogy 
between the physical needs of the body and the spiritual needs of the soul. And what blind Bartimaeus shows us by his disability and by his plea for mercy is what sin does. It blinds us. It keeps us from seeing the reality that exists in our own being, in our own spirit, and the reality of what God has done in regard to our condition. This is something that we see throughout Scripture. We just saw uh, this morning as we were looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in discipleship that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We are spiritually blind when we remain in our unbelief. When the gospel comes to us, as it comes to natural men, if the Spirit of God is not at work, Paul describes the situation He says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And that's simply another way of speaking about our blindness. We are unable to see. We are unable to understand. Unless the Spirit of God works through the gospel to open our eyes and to give us that understanding. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we fail to see our need. We fail to see how sinful we are or how much we need to have the grace of God effective in our lives. This is the condition every one of us were in before the Lord drew us to the Savior. Every one of us were blind. Isn't that what we just sang? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was blind. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We were blind. The gospel came in, and the supernatural nature of the gospel then opened our eyes to see. And we understood. We saw ourselves, and we saw Jesus. And we knew. This was my experience. As a 13-year-old boy, hearing the gospel for the first time. And when I heard it, it was like a light bulb being turned on. I could finally see. I finally understood. I grew up to that point thinking what most people do. You live your life and you try. And if you do better than you do bad, then you'll be in. But I heard the gospel and I realized that wasn't the case. I finally understood. My eyes were open. And if anyone has come to faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel, that is what has happened. We have been given eyes to see. Another thing that the blind man saw was who Jesus was. Other people may have called him Jesus of Nazareth, but the blind man called him Jesus, son of David. Now, this is a title that does not appear often in the Gospels, but it would have been familiar to any Jew who knew the Old Testament. Jesus, son of David, means Jesus, the Messiah. It doesn't 
simply refer to the fact that Jesus was a descendant of David. It is a specific title. He is the Savior whom God had always promised to send. This blind man had, by the Spirit of God, been able to put two and two together. Here is one who is genetically a descendant of David, and he does works that only God can do. Like causing blind men to see. He is Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, the Savior, the Messiah. In those days, the traditional Jewish synagogue prayers included a petition asking God to have mercy on the kingdom of the house of David, of the Messiah of thy righteousness. It was commonly understood the Messiah is coming from the house of David. He is going to be the son of David. By calling Jesus the son of David, the blind man is acknowledging him as the Messiah, as the Savior whom God had promised. Clearly he had heard about the miracles that Jesus had performed elsewhere. And he understood at least that much when he cried out to him. He declares that Jesus is Israel's royal king, David's rightful heir, and God's righteous Messiah. Other people saw Jesus as a preacher, as a a miracle worker. The blind man also saw him as a savior, the savior. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved as the blind man was. Because that's who Jesus is. He is the Savior. And if you see, like the blind man did, your need, and if you see Jesus for who he is, and you call out to him, he will save. That is his promise. And Jesus always keeps his promises. The blind man not only saw Jesus as the Savior, the blind man received Jesus as his Lord. When Jesus asked him what he wanted, he addressed Jesus as the Lord. See that in verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And this is more than just a sign of respect. It also amounts to a confession of faith. Whether he fully realized it or not, by calling Jesus Lord, the blind man is expressing the proper relationship between him and God. God is master. He is Lord. He is the sovereign one. There is no way to separate salvation in Christ from the lordship of Christ. We need to make this very clear because this has gotten clouded in the minds of many who believe that they can come to Jesus and receive him as Savior and thereby escape hell, but they don't need to follow him as Lord. You cannot separate the person of Jesus. He is Savior and he is Lord. He is who he is. And if you're going to come to Jesus, you come to Jesus as he is. Savior and Lord. This is why the gospel always includes repentance. 
We are called to turn away from our sin which has separated us from God and to embrace the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. You cannot claim to belong to Jesus if you don't love him. And if you don't keep his commandments, Jesus says, you don't love him. The blind man could see better than most people, including many in the crowds that followed Jesus around Jericho. He had 20-20 vision in that respect. Do you see your sin? Do you see your need of a Savior? And have you found that Savior in Jesus Christ? See, this, this passage in Luke is not just about a physical healing It's not just about a guy who was blind who now can see. This passage is about salvation. This blind man had spiritual eyes, even though his physical eyes weren't yet working. And he could see. He could see who Jesus was. He could see what Jesus could do. He could see... Himself, he saw finally Jesus standing before him. Jesus made the blind man see. The scripture says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The blind man experienced this for himself. Jesus heard his plea and opened his eyes. Delivering him from blindness. Delivering him ultimately from the beggary in which he found himself. All by his royal command. Jesus the Lord spoke. And this man's eyes were opened. And the first person he sees is his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By performing this miracle, Jesus fulfilled the ancient promise that he had come to recover the sight of the blind. This is the fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. This promise is fulfilled in a spiritual way every time a sinner comes to Christ as Lord and Savior. A believer is someone who has been delivered from blindness. And set free from the bondage of sin. There's also a physical dimension to God's promise, of course. The restoration of the blind man's sight is a reminder that salvation is for the body as well as the soul. His physical healing fell within the gospel category of salvation. When Jesus described what he had done for the man, he says, Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you more literally. It uses the, 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 the Greek verb there, sozo, which is the word that is used for salvation. It's also described, it, it also describes healing and delivering and rescuing. All of that comes together physically and spiritually in Jesus Christ. 
So while the blind man's salvation included much more than the recovery of his physical sight, his sight was not to be overlooked. Jesus saved the man from his physical distress with a view to his eternal destiny. God had promised that in the end he will provide physical as well as spiritual well-being. Now that physical healing may not come in the way it came to Bartimaeus. It may not come in a moment. It may not come through a miracle, but it will come. Because the promise that God gives to us is that there will be a day when we will be raised with new glorified bodies. And these bodies of ours will no longer experience any pain, any sickness. They will no longer be subject to death. They will be perfect. One day, God will save us from every last consequence of sin. We need to look at our bodies in the same way we understand our sin. As believers in Jesus Christ, our sin does not disappear when we come to faith in Jesus. It is an ongoing struggle throughout our lives. Living lives of repentance and confession. Taking off the flesh and putting on Jesus Christ every day. But the day is coming when sin will no longer be an issue either. I can't wait for that day. To be in the presence of my Savior. To be raised as he was raised. A glorified body likened unto his glorified body. And to have sin no longer torment me. What a glorious day it will be. No more sin. No more sickness. No more disability. No more disease. But these healings that we find in the scripture should not mislead us into expecting full salvation right away. This is the error of the faith healers who expect physical healing to be the immediate result of salvation in every case. And it's simply not the case. Jesus did not heal everyone, and God has not promised to heal, to to save us from the suffering in this fallen world that we experience. He has promised to save us through suffering to glory. And so the healing miracles of Christ hold out promise for the glorious salvation that awaits us, that is yet to come. We will have perfect health in heaven, where death will be no more. Neither will there be any mourning or crying or pain. And sometimes God does see fit to heal now. But not all of the time. Not most of the time. Sometimes he will heal miraculously. Sometimes he will heal through medical science. Sometimes he will not heal. God is sovereign over our bodies. And he will do what he does for his good and wise purposes. And we are to trust in that, awaiting the day 
when the fullness of our salvation will be revealed in the fullness of his kingdom. Even the man that Jesus met on the Jericho Road was still waiting for that perfect salvation, but he caught his first glimpse of it when Jesus opened his eyes. As we suffer in the body and we struggle with our own physical limitations, the story of Bartimaeus gives us the hope that Jesus has the power to heal us and to make us whole again, and indeed he has promised to do so. In his time. Even before Jesus performed his miraculous cure, the blind man could see more than most people. The way he received his sight, both spiritual and physical sight, was by grace through faith. Jesus said to him in verse 42 Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. The blind man was seeing. Because he was believing. It was his faith that made him well. And properly speaking, of course, it was Jesus who healed him, not his faith. You need to understand how these things are are, are verbalized in Scripture. When we talk about our salvation being, uh, you know, we, we say we are justified by faith. Well, we are justified because God declares us to be justified. But faith is the instrument of that justification. Faith is what God uses to justify. Likewise, the blind man's faith is not that operative thing, that that, that power which healed him. Rather, the faith is what was the instrument, I should say, of Jesus' healing of the man. The man who received Jesus by faith, and thus faith was the channel by which he received his salvation. B.B. Warfield was correct when he said that it is not even faith, strictly speaking, that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith, Christ himself. This is what saved the man from Jericho. Faith in Jesus. And therefore his example shows us what it means to put our faith, our trust in Christ. What can this example teach us then about what it means to have faith in Jesus as the son of David, our Lord and our Savior from sin? Let me just give you a few things. First, his example shows that faith is persistent. The blind man did something more than simply call out to Jesus. He kept crying for mercy until Jesus stopped to heal him. To put it another way, he kept praying until Jesus saved him. Since he could not see his way to Jesus... How else could he get the salvation that he so desperately needed? He continued to shout for mercy over the noise of the crowd, even after everyone was telling him to be quiet. Verse 39 says, Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He wouldn't let anyone or anything stop him from getting to Jesus. 
And so he was not afraid to make a commotion. And he was not afraid to you know, have attention focused on him. He was not afraid to ignore the rebukes of people who didn't understand what was going on. He would allow nothing to stop him from getting Jesus' attention. He was rewarded for that persistence because Jesus stopped, we're told, verse 40, and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him and asked, what do you want me to do for you? And the answer, of course, was that he wanted to see. He believed that Jesus had the power to save him and he would not stop crying out until Jesus did just that. And the lesson should be easy to apply, shouldn't it? Don't keep quiet. Cry out for deliverance until Jesus brings you salvation. We don't understand this today. Because the gospel, as it has been presented for, to, to so many of us, and as we have heard it preached so often, seems so simple. And it seems immediate. Pray this prayer, come down the aisle, that's all it takes. The Puritans understood that that was not the case. That sometimes it was difficult to get into the kingdom. They understood the language that scripture often uses about fighting our way into the kingdom. Because there are obstacles. Our sin is an obstacle. This world is an obstacle. Satan is an obstacle. And if someone hears that kind of gospel that, that makes it sound easy, they are in a difficult position. Because what happens then? I prayed a prayer, but my life is the same. Nothing has changed. They don't have an understanding which is going to cause them to keep pursuing Christ. Keep coming. Keep fighting. Keep crying out. Perhaps some of you are in that position even today. You've, you've came to Christ long ago. Your, your, your spiritual life hasn't changed very much. You haven't advanced. You're still struggling. You've got doubts now because you haven't seen a lot happen in your life and you're tempted to say is this all there is maybe even to give up when what you ought to be doing is following the example of Bartimaeus and continuing to cry out to Jesus to save you and to complete the work if he has saved you to move you along in your sanctification, to accomplish his good purposes in you. This is the lesson that we ought to learn. The Christian walk is not easy, and it doesn't all happen at once. It is a lifetime of struggle and fighting, and yes, doubt. But we don't give up, because we've seen Jesus. Our eyes have been opened and we know there's more than what I'm experiencing here and now. And we need to commit ourselves to crying out until Jesus grabs hold of us and, and moves us along. And we begin to see what is possible in the life of faith. 
Be persistent as Bartimaeus was. Keep crying out for anything and everything that you need. There is nothing you need that Christ will not provide. And if you pray in persistent faith, he will not pass you by. He is not too busy helping others to help you. He will stop in the middle of the road to save you. Unless the blind man's faith had been persistent, he never would have caught Jesus' attention. This is the second aspect of the man's faith. It was a, a personal faith in Jesus Christ. He called directly on Jesus for his salvation, and he did this with all that was in him. God calls everyone to trust personally in Jesus Christ. If you call out in faith, he will be your Savior, not just a Savior, not the Savior, but your Savior. Theologians have long taught that there are three essential elements to personal saving faith. There is knowledge, there is belief, and there is trust. And the blind man had all three. You've got to have knowledge. You've got to know the content of the gospel. You've got to understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to give his life for sinners in the place of sinners and that if you trust in him, you will be saved. There has to be that knowledge. That's why we proclaim the gospel. That's why we take the gospel to the world because it has to be based upon knowledge. But there is also something in addition to knowledge. There is this assent to the knowledge. Do you know that once that someone can have a knowledge of the content of the gospel, they can repeat back to you, A, B, C, D, here is what the gospel consists of, and then not believe it. They don't assent to it. And there are many like that. But saving faith necessitates both an understanding of the gospel and an assent to it. I guess I know what the gospel is and I believe it. I believe this to be true. But there's something else without which the gospel is not saving. I can believe that the gospel is true and still not trust in it. That's the third element of the gospel. To trust. It is the volitional dimension of faith in which the one who is regenerate offers unconditional surrender to Jesus. As Luther explained, there is a difference between faith which believes what is said of God is true and faith which throws itself on God. That's trust. It's no longer abstract. It's no longer intellectual. It is the personal I'm trusting in my God to bring the gospel to bear in my life and to save me. Trusting aspect of faith was graphically illustrated in the ministry of John G. Patton. Patton was a missionary, a pioneer missionary to what are now called the New Hebrides Islands. And he found that the natives among whom he began to work, had no writing for their language. He began to learn their language and in time began to translate a Bible for them to develop, in essence, a written language for them. 
But soon he discovered that nowhere in the entire vocabulary of these tribes was there any word for faith. And this is, of course, pretty serious if you're going to translate the Bible into a new language. If there's no word for faith, you're, you're in trouble. One day when he was out on a hunt with one of the native peoples, they shot a large deer, and in the course of the hunt, tying its legs together, supporting it on a pole, they trekked back down the mountain to Patton's home, which was near the shore. And as they reached Patton's home, both men threw the deer down, and the native immediately flopped onto one of the chairs outside of Patton's home and exclaimed, My, it is good to stretch yourself out here and rest. And Patton, as he describes it, jumped to his feet and immediately recorded that phrase. And in his final translation of the New Testament, that was the phrase he used to convey the understanding of faith of trust, to stretch yourself out and rest upon God. That's it. That is what we are called to do in regard to salvation, to no longer depend upon ourselves, but to throw ourselves upon God and rest upon what he has done. True faith, says the Heidelberg Catechism, is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. And that is the gospel that saves. That's the gospel that Bartimaeus came to understand and believe. And that is the gospel that will save us today as well. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. Should there be any here this morning, Father, who remain blind Remain in bondage to their sin. Father, open their eyes that they might see Jesus. Open their eyes that they might see their own sin. Open their eyes, Father, that they might see the grace which you have offered for them. Thank you, Father, for that great grace. Thank you for eyes to see. May we see more and more until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.